guys. Hey, good morning and welcome to worship. My name is Eric Barton and I get to pastor down here. So whether you're here on the third floor, down on the second floor or first floor or watching remotely, as Mike has already said, we are delighted that you are here. And I'm so thankful for the squires taking us through Philippians chapter 1 where Paul tells us the criticality of a radical even keelness. <laughs> Do you detect that in our world today? A radical even keeledness. I don't. The majority of what I experience and encounter are a whole lot of people whose ships are being tossed to and fro, and there's not a pervasive, radical, even keelness. Everybody, whether you're on this side of the aisle or that, whether you're on this side of the pond or that, discerns and detects that there's some sort of evil at play. Whatever evil means to whomever is considering the conversation, there's something going on. Won't somebody fix all this? <laughs> this is why getting to be a pastor is so fun, because the answer is yes. And it prepares us for our big idea in one of my favorite chapters of all time ever in Holy Scripture. Our big idea for the morning goes like this. Jesus conquers every form of evil. Jesus conquers every form of evil. And that's a big day. So if you've got your Bible, I'm going to invite you to turn with me to the Gospel of Mark and in chapter 5. So far, we've walked through four chapters in the Gospel of Mark. And what we've seen again and again is this refrain, that Mark, sitting in Rome, being dictated to by the Apostle Peter, is writing from Rome to Romans to tell them that this is how life works, that Jesus is truly the King of kings and the Lord of lords, not emperor, not Caesar. Those guys live, they die, they marry their horses. Ew, 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 who pays for that wedding? Jesus is king! And who can stand before him? He is the one who is the king. The king has come. His kingdom is here. Now, we've made it all the way through chapter 4. We've heard Jesus up in Capernaum in the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. Tell the leaders and the people that I'm the stronger man. I have released people from a hostage situation. A strong man bound them in sin and death, but I'm even stronger. Morally, divinely, I have freed them. And then he breaks into parables and makes people go, I'm not sure I understand all that. And then he says, y'all, get in the boat. We're going to the other side. And they truck over to the eastern shore of the Sea of Galilee, and immediately they meet resistance. A storm comes up and Jesus is asleep. Why? Because he's tired. Why? Because he's human. Because he's a man. But then he simply stands up and he goes, shush, still. And the storm is gone and the waters are calm. And the disciples go, what in the world? That is Psalm 127. That is Psalm 65. He's in our boat. Wow. And they proceed to the other side. Remember the other side is the Decapolis. 200 BC, the Greeks begin to build cities there, and they build 10 cities. By Jesus' time in the Roman Empire, there's about 18 cities called the Decapolis. And it is the, the other side where Luke will talk about in his parable of the prodigal son, the other side, a far country, where the younger brother went and he was with the pigs. Oh, that's interesting. Jesus says, y'all get in a boat, we're going to the other side. Those cities that were the hotbed of adultery, idolatry, and bloodshed. The three things that every Jew was trying with all their power and might to avoid were going over there. And immediately the other king of the oppressive kingdom sees them coming and tries to resist them with a storm. And as Jesus 
pour, approaches the shore, you get the idea. It's sort of out of a Lord of the Rings movie. You've got darkness. This demoniac, this demon-possessed guy is going to run out of the hills and try to resist. There is darkness in this part of the world. We're going to pick up in Mark chapter 5. Mark chapter 5. That would be Daniel. That's also very good, but not for this morning. Mark chapter 5, they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gerasenes. Now, you might have a different translation. It might say the Gadarenes or the Gennesaret or all kinds of different words. We're not quite sure how to translate that, but it's the eastern side of the Sea of Galilee. There's about 18 cities over there, one of which was actually on the west of the Jordan River. But the whole area, it's fascinating. Very, very affluent there was a trade route that went from that area all the way up to Damascus. Very, very important for commerce and for the economy. In fact, it's so important that the Roman Empire actually had a garrison stationed there. An entire Roman legion of 6,000 soldiers were there simply to protect the trade. And the signet or the symbol of this Roman legion, well, it... It just so happens to be a boar's head. Very interesting. And when Jesus had stepped out of the boat, immediately, remember, 42 times in the Gospel of Mark, he'll say, and immediately, and immediately, and immediately. This is an action movie. Because Romans, like East Texans, we get bored quickly. And so immediately what happened was, immediately what happened was, last week, I know, was a long teaching section. That's chapter 4. Chapter 13 is a long teaching section. I'm not going to tell you what week that is. You just keep coming. But immediately... Jesus jumps off the boat and he encounters something really terrifying. And when Jesus stepped out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit. Now, remember, Capernaum, the center in the north of good little Jewish boys and girls. They did not go to where unclean things were. This guy is demon-possessed. He's unclean. He's living in the tombs. That makes him unclean. He's touching dead things. This is about as unclean an environment as you can be in. But wait, there's more. He lived among the tombs, and no one could bind him anymore, not even with a chain. This dude's got some superhuman strength for some reason. He's able to unshackle and unbind himself, even when forcibly restrained. For he had often been bound with shackles and chains, but he wrenched the chains apart and he broke the shackles in pieces. No one had the strength to subdue him. I want to remind you, there is a garrison of 6,000 Roman soldiers, and their job is to protect the peace and they want no part of this guy from the Gerasenes. I refer to him affectionately as Gary. <laughs> Crazy Gary. You can't put Gary in leg irons or irons or shackles. He's just going to bust them. Gary runs free, and no Roman soldiers want any piece of him. Now, Mark and Luke tell us there's, there's this one. Matthew tells us there's actually several of them wandering around the tombs. In other words, this is not a hospitable envir environment for Jewish people. Nobody could bind him. Really sort of amazing. Verse 5, Night and day among the tombs and on the mountains, he was always crying out and cutting himself with stones. This is a horrifying picture. Gary is scary, and he's clearly oppressed and opposed by a demonic force. What is the purpose of a demonic opposition? It is to mar and to corrupt the image of God on a person. So he's walking around naked. 
He's beaten. He's hurting himself, perhaps some sort of strange ritualistic manner that we don't understand. He's crying. He's moaning. He's desperate. There sort of seems to be in the interchange of dialogue with Jesus, sort of a going back and forth where he's got some lucidity, but then there's complete corrosion and corruption and confusion, and he's dead. He's dead. Gary is a walking dead. You have to understand. So as you sit in Rome and you wonder, Who's going to deal with the evil of the world? As you said in East Texas, and you watch your news network, whichever it might be, and you go, who's going to deal with the evil of the world? Just remember, this Jesus conquers every form of evil. There is no evil to which he cannot and has not gone. And that's very good news. Verse 6, and when he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and fell down before him. You sort of get the sense, this is the guy. This is his one shot. This is not the demons coming to worship or perhaps even pay homage. This is the guy. One shot. He runs and he just dives right before Jesus. Verse 7, and crying out with a loud voice, he said, what have you to do with me, Jesus? And then the other voice takes over. Son of God, the most high God. That is a pagan, Gentile expression for God. It's what you'll see King Nebuchadnezzar say in Daniel 4. It's what you'll see Darius say in Daniel chapter 6. This man is proclaiming a demonic truth. So far, the disciples don't know who Jesus really is. The townspeople of Israel don't know who Jesus is. Only God and the demons actually know who this Jesus is. That's interesting. What will you do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I adjure you by God. I implore you in the name of God. Do not torment me. Now that's interesting. He's been tormenting, trying to mar and corrupt and pervert the image of God on this man. And yet he begs Jesus not to torment him. Why? He's expecting to be tormented. Why? Because he knows his end is already prescribed, foretold. It is future history. For he was saying to him, for Jesus was saying to him, come out of the man, you unclean spirit. You get the idea? As Jesus steps out of the boat, he goes, you out, you out, you out, you out. Why would he do that? Why? The verb tense tells us that he's saying it again and again. Does he not have enough umption and, and chutzpah? No, because there was lots of them. It's a horrifying scene. And Jesus asked him, what is your name? He replied, my name is Legion, for we are many. Now, any Roman ear sitting in Rome, hearing or reading Mark's gospel would have understood 6,000 or so demonic presences are described here. This is as horrifying and dark as it gets. And he begged him earnestly not to send them out of the country. Please, Jesus, we like it here. We're quite happy tormenting your creation. Don't make us leave. Now, a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside. Oh, it just got uncleaner. Dead people, naked dude, bleeding, screaming, and who knows what. Oh, good. Now there's bacon. The Jews are like, whoa. And you get the sense. Jesus just goes, he hears an oink, and he just looks over at him like this. And the demons go, yeah, 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 yeah. Send us into there. An unclean animal is the perfect host for an unclean spirit. Hope you enjoyed your breakfast. <laughs> a great herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him, saying, send us to the pigs. Let us enter them. Understand who's in control, who has command. They beg him because they know he has authority. Watch what happens. So he gave them permission. I remember my dad a couple times, I would ask him for something, and he'd finally just go, 
That's it. And you get the sense Jesus just goes, hit the bricks. And these spirits of uncleanliness and torment go into the pigs. Watch what happens. And the unclean spirits came out and entered the pigs. And the herd, numbering about 2,000, so I don't know, do the math. It's like three demons a pig. That's a bad buffet, all right? (laughs) Numbering about 2,000 rushed down the steam bank into the sea and drowned in the sea. There's a lot going on here. We could spend hours on it. We're not going to. The idea is these unclean animals drowned. Demons don't drown. But this is a way of Jesus preventing them to continue tormenting anybody else. The idea of the sea in the Jewish mind is always the abyss, down into the depths. They're not going to hover around looking for some other body to torment. Jesus takes them to the depths. They are drowned, not literally. They didn't gasp for air. They're gone. They're they're, um, banished to the depths by Jesus in this one single act. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city. You think? Boys, we just got the day off. There's no more pigs anywhere. Now that causes a ruckus, as you might imagine. The herdsmen fled and told it in the city and in the country. And people came to see what it was that had happened. What is going on? The entire Roman garrison couldn't deal with Gary. But this guy comes from the north, from the Jewish side, and he just does that. And it's over. Watch. And they came to Jesus and saw that the demon-possessed man, the one who had the legion, sitting there clothed and in his right mind and they were afraid hey there gary how are you what you wearing there gary khakis <laughs> gary he's got clothes on he's not cutting himself he's not howling and moaning he's just sitting there going y- y- y'all got any salt bacon's delish <laughs> he's totally delivered he is redeemed now watch 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 They were afraid. And those who had seen it described to them what had happened to the demon-possessed man and to the pigs. And they began to beg Jesus to depart from their region. This is a power we can't control. This is an authority we can't command. And and not even Rome has this kind of influence and impact. We're not ready for this. You've got to go. We've got lives to live on this side in our darkness. Verse 18, as he was getting into the boat, the man who had been possessed with demons begged him that he might be with him. This is a Gentile guy. And Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. Oh, that's amazing. Every other time Jesus has had a power encounter, he says, don't tell anybody about this, but not this guy. I want you to go tell your story. Now, here's a spoiler alert. We're going to find in a couple chapters, Jesus is going to crisscross the lake several times. He's going to come back to this side the next time, and there are throngs of people waiting to see Jesus because one guy told his story. There I was, buck naked, cutting myself, living in the tombs with the pigs. Jesus, and that is a compelling story. Now, here's what I love to tell I love Gary. I love Gary. He's the first preacher who's a Gentile to the Gentiles. Oh, Paul likes to call himself the apostle to the Gentiles, but long before Paul, there was Gary. It's my story. Crazy, 
left to my own devices in darkness, harming myself, marring the image of God with which I was created, and yet released from darkness and death, raised to walk in newness of life, to proclaim the excellencies of the King. I love Gary! I'm Gary. But wait, there's more. And he went away and began to proclaim in the Decapolis, not just Gergesene or Gesserin, one of the cities that might have been. No, no, all the Decapolis, all 10 to 18 cities, Gary's going, y'all remember me? Look, khakis! I've been freed. I don't know about all that. I don't know his family. I don't know his tribe. I don't even know what that means. I'm alive. I was dead. I'm alive. How much Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. You cannot argue with a story. And then Jesus gets back in the boat. And when Jesus had crossed again into the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. So Jesus has crossed from Capernaum. He's gone over to the east side. He's crisscrossed back to the northern shore to Capernaum. You kind of have to be there in the geography. You've got to understand what he's doing. He's, he's totally making such a ruckus up in the north that it's unmissable. He goes back to the sea. He hasn't even gotten out of the boat, and there's already a crowd going, wait, did he just go over to the other side, to what Luke 15 calls the far country with the pigs? He went over, and he's back. Well, well, we need this guy. He was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet. Now, what you have to sort of understand very, very quickly is this is what we call a Mark sandwich. Mark loves to write this way. I think it's Peter, because you'll see some of this in Peter's epistles. Mark loves to write with a sandwich. He gives a thing, he gives a thing, and then he gives a thing. But just like in our day, you don't call a sandwich a whole wheat sandwich. You call a sandwich by the thing in the middle. Huh? You got a ham and cheese sandwich. And oh, by the way, it has bread. The bread is very important, however. It is the delivery mechanism of the thing in the middle. You, you got to have the thing on the top and you got to have the thing on the bottom, but the focus and the emphasis is on the thing in the middle. So we're going to get a piece of bread, Jairus and his daughter. We're going to finish with Jairus and his daughter, and then we're going to see this thing in the middle. You kind of got to get the whole thing that's being delivered to you as a sandwich. Welcome to lunch. Here we go. Came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. Remember, Capernaum's probably 1,500 people. A ruler of the synagogue means he was a layman. He's not a formal rabbi or a priest or a clergyman. He's an influential, affluential member of the community. He's the president of the synagogue. It's a beautiful synagogue. You can see it today. No, literally, you can see it today. You should come with me in October. I'm going to see it in October. I would love for you to come. Check it out. It's in the bulletin. Jairus is the president of the synagogue. means he has the keys to the little closet where Torah is held. He's a really big deal. Got a lot of pomp, a lot of circumstance. He's kind of known Everyone knows what chair, what table is his at the restaurants in town. Jairus is the thing. But you know what? You mess with a man's little girl, all pride, all arrogance goes by the wayside. Watch. This Jairus, he comes, he falls at Jesus' feet. Oh, he knew what Jesus had been saying. He knew what Jesus had been doing. But he's willing to risk all of his reputation for his little girl. Isn't that beautiful how Jesus puts us in those kinds of contexts? And Jairus implored him earnestly, saying, my little daughter, we can't make a big enough deal about this language, implored him earnestly, begging him. This proud man of affluence is on his face before this Nazarene carpenter. Please, my little girl, she's dying. 
It's not that she's not doing so well. She's on her last few breaths. She's at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. You're my only and last shot. I need you to come with me, please. And he went with them. One of my favorite little sentences in the entirety of the Bible. And Jesus goes, okay. You expect him to go, no, no, no. The dog in Greece has no friends and is blue. Like, why the riddles? She's dying. No, Jesus just, just, just goes with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. Welcome to the sandwich. We've got this Jairus guy who has fallen before Jesus, begging for his assistance, begging for his involvement. And there's a woman. And this woman, can I just be direct, is the most unseen human being in the world. It's heart-wrenching. She couldn't be more afflicted. She is the most unseen human there is. Listen how she's described. There's a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. She is unclean on unclean on unclean. And who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but rather grew worse. Everything she tried just made it worse. And now she's financially ruined. She's socially an outcast. She's spiritually derelict. She can't go to synagogue. She can have no fellowship. She's not even supposed to be in Capernaum. She's unclean. And there's a crowd of humanity. Anybody that she touches, she makes unclean. And here she is with no other options. And the text just tells us, parenthetically, this has been going on for 12 years. Not to shock you at the depths of her affliction, although that is a part of it. There's more on that in a moment. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. <laughs> the outer hem of his outer cloak. She has a plan. She knows, if I can just get to him, if I can just touch the outer cloak, this is my last and only shot. Where have we seen this before? For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. This is my one chance. And immediately, Mark, and immediately, watch, 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 watch. The symptom stops and the cause stops. This is redemption. She knew immediately, not just that the symptom, the bleeding had stopped, but that the condition was made whole. She is redeemed. And immediately, the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Oh, this Jesus, he encounters demons and devils. Now he encounters disease. Jesus conquers every form of evil. And he wasn't even paying attention. You think Nero is Lord? You think Augustus was Caesar? <laughs> this Jesus is just walking and he heals a 12-year affliction without even paying attention. Mark says, who? Who is Lord? Verse 30, and Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? Are you serious? It's like trying to identify the left-handed guy in a rugby scrum. Like, what do you mean? Who do you, who and the disciples scoff. Like, what are you talking about? Ah, but we need a little help here. The English is not so clear. In Greek, when Jesus says who, it's in the feminine. 
he quite literally would have said, who's the woman that touched me? Now, don't, don't, don't misunderstand what's going on here. Crowd of people gathered all around Jesus. Jairus has just come and face planted. Please, you got to come. My little daughter, she's got like minutes left. Please, please come. And Jesus, something happens and Jesus stops. Who, who's the woman that touched me? And Jairus is going, ah, ah, ah. <laughs> there is no emergency with Jesus. He stops. Who's the woman that just touched me? And the disciples scoff, like, what are you talking about who touched me? There's a crowd all over you. I love me some Jesus. Watch, watch. Verse 31, and his disciples said to him, you see the crowd pressing around you, and you say, who touched you? And he looked around to see who, feminine, who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him. You see a pattern there? Who is Lord? Ask Gary. Ask Jairus. Ask this woman. And told him the whole truth. And he said to her, this kills me, daughter. It's the only person in the Bible who's called daughter by Jesus. Such compassion. Such tenderness. Can I remind you? The most unseen, unclean, inhuman person, including Gary, on the planet, and Jesus says, daughter. You ever felt that affection from Jesus? I love this guy. I wish I loved like him. I wish I looked at others like him. He's not bound up in the, in the, in the sights and the sounds and the smells. He just goes, daughter. He pauses the whole procession. He could have let, she was healed. She was already well. That's not what Jesus is interested in. He's not interested in just making sick people healthy. <laughs> he wants a relationship. He's willing to pause and go, you, eyes here, daughter. Meanwhile, Jairus is still on one foot to the other, one foot to the other. He said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Now, we have a tendency in the English to put the emphasis on the wrong syllable. <laughs> it's not your faith has made you well. It's your faith has made you well. In other words, the object that you trusted in has the power. In other words, it wasn't a magic trick. It wasn't that you touched my garment. It's that you came to me. It's not that she believed more than somebody else believed. No. Remember, the more we examine the object of our faith, the more our faith grows. It is your faith, not the contact with my cloak that made you well. You believed in me. Keep that ringing in your ears because that's the point of the sandwich. Here we go. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? It's over. It's too late. And can I just say parenthetically, with Jesus, it never is. But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear. Only believe. And he tosses his eyes back at her. She trusted in the object enough to follow and fall. You keep following and falling. Look at the object of your faith. Look at her. You saw what just happened. Now let's go. 
And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. Why? Legal witnesses. Why not the whole 12? Probably wasn't room. But it's always these guys who witnessed the Mount of Transfiguration, legal witnesses to attest that Jesus is the Son of the Most High God. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, that's Jairus, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. It's already begun. In Israel, even the poorest of poor were afforded the grace and the dignity. If you couldn't afford it, you were provided at least two professional mourners and a flautist. Because, you know, everyone wants to have a little flute music at their dead person's wake. Already it's begun, at least two, but Jairus was a big deal. Several professional mourners and, Matthew tells us, a flute player is already playing the dirge. And when Jesus had entered, he said to them, why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. I want to remind you, they're wailing and they're moaning and there's, ah. and Jesus, what's the, what's the ruckus? She's she just sleeping. Same thing he said in John 11 with Lazarus. She was dead, dead, very much dead. It's a euphemism. It's a metaphor that Jesus is using. And they laughed at him. They, that turned quickly. Just like the disciples scoffed when he addressed the woman, these people scoff at Jesus. Probably not a good idea, incidentally. They laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in there where the child was, taking her by the hand. <laughs> Isn't that tender? And precious, taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumi, which means you're going to the daddy-daughter dance with Jairus. <laughs> what? No, not, not exactly, but it's something like that. Little girl, I say to you, rise. Peter was there. Peter's recounting this to Mark in Rome, and he keeps it in Aramaic because it was so meaningful and tender to Peter you're going to see Peter do the same thing here in a few chapters. It's amazing. Talitha, kumi. I say to you, get up. Why does he have to translate the Aramaic? Because it's in Rome and they don't speak Aramaic in Rome. So Mark explains it. It's not Caesar. It's not emperor. It's Jesus. He is Lord. And immediately, up she goes. She doesn't like, no, she just pops up. Immediately, the girl got up and began walking. Why? Because she was 12 years old. She's not a person yet. She can't get married. Oh, but at 13, she can. Now she's alive to live fully alive. And she's 12. And it just so happens that the woman had been bleeding for 12 years. <laughs> I don't know what you think about sovereignty. I don't know what you think about the miracles of Jesus that he just does this and things happen. But what if from the foundations of time and space he had been planning this intersection? So that for 12 years, these two who maybe knew each other, maybe didn't, this little girl is born, and at 12 years, this woman starts to hemorrhage. And 12 years on, here they come. 12 years on, here they come. 12 years on, here they come. Jesus, who conquers every form of evil. Jesus issues two commands. One's going to be obeyed, one is not. Kind of interesting here. Immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. <laughs> Literally, they were outside their minds. You think? 
with joy, with shock, with awe, with disbelief and doubt and wonder, all of those things. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to get her something to eat. Y'all got any Pop-Tarts in here? This girl's 12. She's hungry. Why did he want her to have something to eat? I'll tell you. Brilliant insight. Because she was alive. And it wasn't a trick. It wasn't an illusion. She was literally alive and she was human. Not some apparition, not some phantom, not some... She was alive and she was human. And he said, listen, I don't want you talking about this because Jairus, you've got influence and affluence. And Herod Antipas, if he hears about this, bad things are going to happen prematurely. Now, the woman, she's not forbid from speaking about it. That's okay. Gary on the other side, go for it, Gary. Tell everybody. But not here, not yet. Jesus is still in full command and control as he goes about his campaign to conquer every form of evil. What do we take away from this? Very quickly. Three quick implications here. Wonderful Mark chapter 5. Jesus conquers every form of evil. Point number one, it's not a fair fight. Just want to remind you of that. It is not a fair fight. In much of our culture, thanks be to Star Wars and everything else, we have this idea of duality. I don't mean physical and spiritual. I mean good and evil. We sort of assume that there's the Marvel characters and there's Thanos. There's the, the good guys and the bad guys, and they're always slugging it out like this, and it's good versus bad. But what we need is we just need somebody in a cape to swoop in and make it a little bit better for the good guys, and then we'll win. Unless you happen to think you're the good guys and you're on this side. Oops. That's not how the actual biblical cosmology, meaning the universe, works. There is God, and then there's this insignificant single-cell amoeba that is our enemy. And you and I have to be reminded of that. Evil is but a twinkle, a flicker in the grand scope of eternity. Jesus has all command and all control. And every other religion is trying to tell you, you just need a boost. You just need a hero. Jesus is no superhero. Jesus is God. And he conquers every form of evil. We need to be reminded about that. But that's not good news unless he's also good. Unless he also loves you and he calls you daughter. He calls you son. He even calls you brother. It's not a fair fight. Number two. We are wounded healers, just like Jesus. This is what we've been called to. We have to point out that this woman represented the lowest of the low in the social structure. She was a woman, most likely. She was probably single or maybe widowed or divorced, but you couldn't stay married to a woman with this affliction. She was sickly. She's cast out, and she's hopeless. But then Jesus restores her, makes her feel seen and loved. And that's what we do. You heard Tracy and, I mean, Casey and Travis talk about, I just conflated your whole, you're not Tracy to me, the, the Tracy Squires. You heard their story, separated in trespass, but redeemed. He rebuked that separation. He rebuked that, that, that chasm that existed and he reunites so that we have the privilege and the prerogative to serve the people of Christ for these good deeds, Paul says in Ephesians 2.10, we have been saved. And we don't just serve and show hospitality. Of course, we do so empathetically, remembering actively what Jesus did for us and how much he loves us. And that, oh, before I get too big and too haughty and proud, oh yeah, I'm Gary. 
an absolute pile of mess. But Jesus loves me and wants me to love others. Jesus wants me to love them with my voice as though it was his. And that's an amazing opportunity we've been given. I've already spoiled the punchline on that. You're going to see in a few more chapters that Peter and the other disciples, they began as Jesus, as their rabbi, and they as the disciples to do exactly what their Lord was doing. The whole book of Acts is going to continue to reverberate these concentric circles of influence and impact as the disciples and the church begins to do precisely that. Third point, Jesus is for everyone. Now, I know that you know that, but do you know that? What about the people who watch that other network? <gasps> what about the people who live on that other side? Maybe of Tyler, maybe of the Sea of Galilee. He's for everyone. We have a tendency to want to keep this Jesus to ourselves and stay here and bless me and bless me and bless me and I'll keep you and hold you and bless me. Whoa, Jesus goes, no, I got to move on. It's a great big world of death and suffering and affliction and separation. I've got to go. We've got to always be about the business of not trying to huddle Jesus to ourselves. That never works. They try to keep him in Capernaum, and he says, deuces, I'm going south. You don't get to keep Jesus for yourself. No, we, we have the opportunity, the privilege, and the prerogative to cast the seed broadly, we might say. We don't get to decide who Jesus would go to. He is the sovereign one that is getting it done. Whatever spheres of influence you have. And I'm just thinking as I walk down on the first and second floors this morning and, and see what's here on the third floor and where you are watching remotely, all the different spheres of influence that God in his particular sovereignty are places where people can hear the gospel through your unique voice and circumstance all over East Texas. Would you pray about that? about telling somebody your story? See, Jesus conquers every form of evil. He has come to release each of us from whatever affliction we experience. Now, you and I hear this, we go, that's really cool, that's amazing, I love that passage. But you have to understand, it is a grand culmination and climax of so much Old Testament biblical narrative. I'm not going to spend time on it right now. But in Malachi chapter 4, the final book of the Old Testament, we're told this in verses 1 and 2. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says Yahweh of the hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But, but, for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness, shall rise with healing in its wings. Kanaf. <laughs> you shall go out, out leaping like calves from the stall. What we find is as Jesus is walking through the streets of Capernaum with his cloak, she, the bleeding woman, reaches out and she touches his kanaf, his wings of his garment. It's the first flicker and foretaste of the Son of Righteousness has risen. <laughs> the King has come. His kingdom is here. It's happening. Jesus conquers every form of evil. And it was long foretold through the history of even the Old Testament. How does Jesus conquer every form of evil? <laughs> Remember Gary? Look at the cross. Look at Jesus. Look, look at Jesus. Naked. Cut. Bruised, humiliated, 
beaten, scorned, mocked. <laughs> he became Gary. You think the ropes and the nails held him there? No. We sing a song. He was unbound. Nothing could keep him there except his love for you and me. Jesus became the horror of horrors, bleeding, a nightmare of grotesqueness to conquer every form of evil. The more we focus, the more we examine the object of our faith, the more our faith grows. Would you be persuaded? Listen, this morning I'm going to invite you to pray with me. If you are not persuaded, I would love to have a conversation with you. I'm going to pray, and then I'm going to ask you to keep your seats to sit tight. We're going to do one more thing, a little out of the ordinary. So we're not going to be dismissed, but please join me in prayer. Stay where you are. I have one more conversation, and then we'll benedict and be dismissed. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for who you are, for what you have done, to redeem us to yourself and to one another. We pray, God, that you would continue the work by your Spirit of persuading anyone who might not yet believe. That if they do believe, you would, help, you would even help their unbelief. For the rest of us, Father, I pray that you would remind us of your goodness, your greatness, your sovereignty, your power, oh, and your love, that you have conquered every form of evil. May we live like it was true. We pray all these things in the power of your Spirit and in the name of Jesus. Amen.